to welcome everyone to our Jepson talk series. Um, uh, tonight, we have Dr. Hader presenting. Um, and before we get to Dr. Hader, I uh, just wanted to uh, let you all know that this is a, a series that has been uh, presented um, on behalf of the Jepson Alumni Corps and the uh, Alumni Engagement Committee, of which we have several members here tonight. Uh, we are doing this where our goal is to have a Jepson Talks about every other month and involve past and um, present faculty members speaking on topics, either research topics or topics that are near and dear to them, or topics from you all. So we ask uh, and encourage you guys to, to email us if there are topics uh, that you're interested in. Uh, you can email uh, Dr. Soderlund um, and, um, and just raise this and say, this is a, a professor I'd like to, to see featured on the Jepson talk. And here's a, here's a, to or here's a topic I'd like to hear about. Um, and uh, and we, we love to respond to that. Um, and uh, I serve as the uh, co-chair of the Alumni Engagement Committee and my fabulous other co-chair will take it from here, give you some updates, and then we will introduce Dr. Hader. So uh, Renee, would you uh, take it from here? Uh, so I'll just very briefly kind of talk a little bit about past talks. At the end, we'll talk a little bit about what we're thinking about for the future. Um, but this is the third um, talk that we've done. Um, our first one was a conversation between Dr. Hickman um, and Dr. Hoyt. Um, and then we had our uh, current and past dean talk about kind of the history um, and experience of Jepson. Um, so uh, we're looking forward to in future Jepson talks, maybe have Dr. Chula come back um, and talk about ethics um, and also involve some more of our current faculty. Um, and we'll be talking more about that in the future. But I want to turn over to um, someone who actually have had Dr. Hader. Um, Don and I didn't get the chance because um, we're older, um, but uh, I will turn it over to um, intro our introdu introducer. Um, so please take it away. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much, Renee, Don, Dr. Sutherland. My name is Ivana Marshall. I am a Jepson alumna from the class of 2017, and I did have the chance to take two of Dr. Hader's wonderful courses. We'll hear more about them in the introduction, Justice and Civil Society and Reimagining Richmond. So I know that we are in for a treat tonight. I'm going to do a brief introduction, and without further ado, we will hear from Dr. Hader. Dr. Julian Hader is a historian whose research focuses on modern U.S. history, American political development, African-American history, and the American Civil Rights Movement. More specifically, his writing and research draws attention to mid-20th century voting rights in Richmond, Virginia, and in the border south. The implementation of the Voting Rights Act and the unintended consequences of African-American political empowerment and governance post-1965. He's the author of The Dream is Lost, Voting Rights and the Politics of Race in Richmond, Virginia. His work has been published in the Journal of Policy History and Richmond Journal of Law and Public Interest. He also contributes to national and local media outlets. In the Jepson School, he teaches courses such as Leadership in the Humanities, Justice in Civil Society, and Reimagining Richmond, an urban history of Richmond and the city's contribution to the freedom struggle. A popular and creative teacher, he was named Faculty Member of the Year in 2013-14 by the Richmond College Student Government Association and earned the Distinguished Educator Award for the University of Richmond in 2018. Dr. Hader, please. Oh, I'll, I'll, uh, okay, yeah. Um, so 
I'm going to talk a little bit about Richmond, a little bit about that, a little bit about this, a um, little bit about leadership, I suspect, um, real or imagined, um, explicit, maybe at times implicit at others. Uh, this is a picture um, here of the Richmond Black Majority Council was elected in 77. I'll tell you a story in some ways I think that'll set up the, the tenor of the conversation. So he's like, I, but just by the nature of the research that I do and that uh, it happens to be in Richmond, you know, I, I know a lot, I, a lot of the politicians that are affiliated with the city or the state. And the last, during the last mayoral election, I was in the grocery store and Chuck Richardson, who's center screen here, um, and I were talking, you know, like politicians are, you know, I think one of the kind of inherent character traits of being a politician is megalomania. Um, it's also that they can't turn it off, like even after they're out of politics. And every person that came in the door, you know, Chuck is asking, well, who you got in the election? And who do you have in the election? And he gets to this older white gentleman and they're talking. And finally, this guy's just exasperated. He throws up his hands. He's like, oh, just black people just ruined the city. And I'm like standing right there. And I'm like, well, you know, thanks for being honest. Um, and I said, but, you know, fair enough. I said, I, you know, but how do you discount nearly, you know, 70 to 80 years of Jim Crow segregation? Like, come on. I'm like, really? Uh, so these people took over city council in 1977. Um, what did they inherit? And we had this really interesting discussion about um, 20th century history, and it got me to thinking, about how to retell the story of Richmond with that in mind, with, um, with thinking about what people inherited in the twilight of the 20th century, how previous generations of leadership shaped not only what Richmond became in the late 20th century, but even more importantly, um, right now. And I'm, you know, hopefully that'll kind of sit in the back of your mind as we move forward. But before we do that, I have, like have a more, like I have a larger conversation about history because it's, I mean, currently, as we seem to be struggling with coming to terms with what it is and what it's not, um, I'll read you a quote, a really good one, I think, um, from James Banner. It said, what we call the past is just that. It's what's happened at some point before now. Once it occurs, the past, it's gone forever, beyond repeating, beyond reliving, beyond replicating. Distinct from the past are narratives and analyses that historians offer about earlier times. That is what we call history. History is what people make of the forever gone past out of surviving documents and artifacts, human recall, such as items as photographs and films, sound recordings. Indeed, history is created by the application of human thought and the imagination, imagination of what's left behind. Historical interpretations tend to grow and adjust in some synchrony with the times in which human experiences moves so that previous historians' interpretations are likely to yield new ones uh, more comprehensible, compelling, relevant to those who are alive. Uh, you know, it's it's interesting. You know, I say this, I say this all the time, um, but I'll say it again in the spirit of this discussion, is that people have lived and died on this planet believing in things that we know are now patently false. And everyone in this room uh, and everybody alive will take ideas to their grave that people, you know, 50 to 60 years from now will think are absolutely absurd. Presentism always shapes the way that we not only think about ourselves, the possibilities of the future, but even more importantly, the past. I mean, who knows what discoveries lie on the horizon and how those, can you imagine, for instance, how people wrote about the bubonic plague, right, before they found out or discovered germ theory? Um, 
These types of things encourage historians to go back and reimagine the past. I mean, we know how they, by the way, we know how they people wrote about um, the bubonic plague before the discovery of germ theory. They talked about it in religious terms and they blamed uh, outside religions um, for it. But I think that's really what this quote encapsulates. And that's all we're going to talk about. Like, how do we reimagine um, the 20th century history in light of the new discoveries that we've come to terms with? Uh, you know, are there historical facts? Absolutely, of course, right? But interpretive contests are inherent to human understanding. And the same is true for history, evidence, and mythology. Should ideally mitigate against the biases. And I think it's what I just said. New discoveries will always change the way that people write history or reimagine the historical facts um, um, that, you know, previous generations had had to contemplate. I mean, like this is like, oh, this is really, this will get us going. But imagine Virginia history. This is actually, these are depictions from a textbook that these, uh, these textbooks actually were mandated um, in the mid 20th century by Jim Crow legislatures and weren't really phased out until like the 1980s and 1990s. Top left is a depiction of the Middle Passage. Um, life, this is a, the, right next to that is a depiction of um, Mount Vernon. It's like life among the Negroes of Virginia and slavery times was generally happy. The Negroes went about the cheerful manner, like uh, living for themselves and for those whom they worked, right? Um, these were, in many ways, the ways that people told the story of Virginia. And um, I think what we know now with recourse to historical material um, is that this, in large part, this version of history was dictated by the people who were writing it. And the, the real history, and I'm going to go, I'm going to get us, I'm going to use Richmond to talk more broadly about urban history. Um, but it's kind of hard to do that without like going back before the Civil War to think about like how people imagined life then. Here's what we actually know. Richmond, in fact, made its bones as a city in the trading of enslaved peoples and, and, and enslaved industrialization. Uh, tobacco, flour, iron consumed all non-agricultural enslavement in Richmond between about 1830 and 1880. The beauty of this kind of tortured system is that slave owners would bargain um, with employers to rent extra enslaved people. And in Virginia alone, roughly about 15,000 slaves were hired out annually in the city, um, usually in correspondence with um, slave owners on the periphery and how um, they were, people were divvied out to work like based on like agricultural production and lulls in agricultural production. And slaves in Richmond were often sought for highly skilled things like tobacco rolling and pig iron. This is part of the reason why the Confederacy was, the capital of the Confederacy is in Richmond. It's not just because of its proximity to Washington, D.C. It's because it was the only industrialized city in the South. Uh, and slave owners were often reluctant um, this is the key, by the way, to directly oversee production in these areas, which were often prone to, prone to flooding and, and malaria. And in time, uh, those the slaves didn't return home, uh, who didn't return home, often roamed and lived in the city relatively freely. Um, in fact, they lived apart from their owners. It's one of the things we know is that there are all these kind of quasi-free communities that emerged during uh, the mid-19th the mid century where industrial or slaves who worked in an industrial capacity didn't live with their owners. Um, and a good number of these slaves were often given money for overwork. And this system would have been uh, equivalent to a present-day bonus system, if you will, where um, slaves co completed a lot of piecemeal work. They were given extra money for going beyond quotas. Um, it's in the tobacco industry, for instance, uh, slaves were often given about eight to twelve dollars a week for overwork. So this is kind of enslaved but quasi-free life that shapes um, Richmond during slavery, and it survives the Civil War. Like, one of the things that we know, yeah, that's all, this is kind of going to sound strange. Just go with me on this. 
you have to think about African-American life after the Civil War as an immigrant story, right? Um, it, 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 where African-Americans are just trying to do many of the same things that their white counterparts are doing who came from Europe or had yet to come. They built communities after the Civil War that rivaled their white immigrant counterparts. And in many cases, they did it in half the time. Um, there's some of these pictures of Skip with House here, which was paved over by the 19, uh, the I-95 64 corridor. It's the Hippodrome, Hippodrome there, top right. Uh, there's the Eggleston Hotel. And of course, at the bottom is Maggie Walker and the St. Luke Penny uh, Savings Bank. She was, of course, the first female bank owner of any race um, in the United States of America. Point being, I think um, the quasi-freedom that Richmonders or African-American Richmonders enjoyed during slavery survives the Civil War, and it begins to shape um, the, the ways that people envision freedom. And Jackson Ward was home to more than, you know, 100 Black-owned businesses in the end of the 19th century. This was a thriving community. Um, between the years of 1889 and 1929, there were as many as six chartered African-American-owned banks in Richmond, um, and all of those had a presence in Jackson Ward. The problem with this is, of course, um, unlike many of their white counterparts, these communities um, were in constant tension uh, with the emergence of, of Jim Crow segregation. And what we begin to see in Southern leadership after the Civil War, this dictates life well into the 20th century, um, is that planters um, reclaimed control over Southern life after the war. Um, they had allies, of course, the nouveau riche industrialists and Northern bankers, et cetera. Um, but ultimately, um, they consolidate their power and in some ways institute what you might call slavery 2.0, with recourse to the law, with recourse to politics. These are leaders. These are, are people who are nostalgic about life before the Civil War and do their best, they do the best they can really after slavery is abolished to reinstitute um, a, a new system that re-solidifies their power, if you will. And what they do is they use poll taxes and literacy tests to remove undesirables from the electoral process. And these direct disenfranchisement mechanisms effectively removed about 80% of African-Americans from the voting ranks. Uh, which made them extremely vulnerable um, uh, to policy initiatives over the course of the 20th century. Dirty little secret, though, is that it also removes 50% of whites from the voting ranks. Uh, Virginia had the lowest voter turnout rate in the United States, uh, for, and one of the lowest voter turnout rates of any free democracy in the world for most of the early 20th century. Um, which is interesting, by the way, if you spend any time um, it, on the heritage sites in, 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 um, in Virginia, be it Monticello or Williamsburg or Mount Vernon, uh, the, the you know this the heritage industry will never pass up an opportunity to kind of situationally position uh, Virginia as a progenitor of American democracy, and I think on the one hand that is true, um, the five presidents that story, but there's another story that in some ways belies that narrative, um, and that is what happened after um, or during slavery and then after Jim Crow slavery about who can actually participate in the electoral process. You know, it's interesting. It's like for most. <laughs> This country's history, you know, we like to think about democracy as instant coffee, like you just added water and there it was. It's actually something, this is why I hate the love it or leave it argument, by the way. It's like, can you imagine what America would look like if everybody that had ever criticized political exclusion had left? Uh, unproperty white men couldn't vote during the revolutionary era. They spent the better portion of the early 19th century arguing for the right to vote. Women, African-Americans, there are all these different iterations throughout American history where people begin to push against the vestiges of power to get, at the seat, to get a seat at the table of democracy. And I think if we actually look at the history of American democracy, instead of mythologizing about it, um, the history of disenfranchisement far eclipses the history of open democracy. And this is just one iteration. What it means, though, in terms of the 20th century is that many of the spaces that we live 
or we inhabit or especially in the South, but not exclusively, are staked by these people. These policymakers, these leaders, these decision makers actually bring their biases to bear on the nature in which cities develop. And cities, in fact, are just a series of human decisions. Uh, nearly every square inch of a city has been planned by public officials. Um, that is a fact. And in the mid 20th century, these officials begin to bring their biases to bear on the process of urban planning. And it's impossible to understand how we got to now without urban 20th century American history. You see this even in the African American community when everything's like trying to explain like a black pathology, like what's going on, what's wrong with the United States. Um, there's this tendency to leapfrog the 20th century to get back to slavery to talk about how race is inextricably linked or embedded in our DNA without giving much consideration to the public policies of the 20th century and how they really determined how we got to now. So I'm going to talk briefly, you know, about redlining and not so much about restrictive covenants, but urban renewal and freeway construction and suburbanization and how they're essential to understanding um, not just this history, but what we inherited. I think one of the things we have to think about um, especially when we're talking about how leadership shaped American cities. It's the thing on the one hand, while, while African-Americans had these thriving communities that they built from scratch, from the ashes, from the ash heap, if you will, of enslavement and slavery, uh, they lacked the, the types of infrastructure that would have enabled a thriving community. Um, you know, many of the city's dumps and, and trash refuge areas were in and around African-American neighborhoods. They lacked proper sewage systems. Um, the, the, and the data, by the way, bears this out. And what we see is at some, you know, and there were 7,500 homes in black areas in Richmond in the 1950s that were overcrowded or where African-Americans were forced to double down. And this is just a kind of picture of what these houses would have looked like nearly uh, 50 to 60 years after African-Americans build up these communities um, you know, during the late 19th century. But uh, about 50 years after the Commonwealth of Virginia enacts the, um, the constitutional uh, the Constitution, 1901 and 1902, about 14,000 homes with indoor, without indoor private toilets, 13,221 without private baths, 2,600 uh, slightly over without running water, 20,000 with cold water access only. The city of Richmond failed to install modern sewage systems in African-American sections of Churchill uh, until 1953, which by many Americans considered the golden age of the American family. Um, at mid-century, overcrowding in Black enclaves gave rise to poor sanitation, rampant disease, and a general lack of adequate medical care. Uh, these communities were still suffering from diseases in the mid-20th century that had been eradicated um, from the upper middle-class and middle-class world. In fact, African-Americans in Black Richmond had one of the highest mortality rates of any city in the United States as a result. By the way, people who understood this history uh, actually saw a direct correlation between it and what happened during the COVID-19 crisis. Um, it's that, you know, certain areas and certain portions of cities have always been sicker. I mean, even to this day, by the way, you can pretty much track people's life expectancy, like by tracking across the zip code. This is the shockingly predictable urban outcomes that have this longer history have led, um, uh, uh, to these kind of even more shockingly predictable results. By the way, I had to sneak the picture of Arthur Ashen because he's, um, a Richmond resident, um, and he also talked uh, very explicitly about what he had to experience during segregation growing up in Richmond. Here's what we know, and I'm not, I'll, I'll, I won't suffer you through this data. Uh, one of the things we do know is that Richmond was more segregated by race and class in 1980 than it was during the height of Jim Crow segregation. Uh, in large part, these policies actually outlive um, uh, the, the rights revolution. And I think one of the things that we have to consider in many ways is whether or not um, 
we've painted the civil rights movement as a triumph narrative. And in many cases it was, um, but I think we've been seduced in many ways by the kind of charismatic leadership uh, during that movement without thinking very intently about the things that outlived the rights revolution, the things that outlived the Voting Rights Act of 1965, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, that outlived King's assassination, where people's lives are actually still affected by policies that were created and not particularly addressed during the 1960s. And census data on the bottom there from Richmond in 2010, um, deeply, still deeply segregated. And what I'm going to try to demonstrate is where people live um, isn't as much as a matter of choice as we would like to think. And of course, you know, people do make choices about where they'd like to live, but they're not doing that in a vacuum. I think history matters. And one of the ways we like this, like was, of course, you know, because of Ta-Nehisi Coates and Richard Ross, Richard Ross Street, redlining has become like a narrative crutch. Whenever we want to seek to explain why cities look the way they do, uh, redlining becomes like ground zero. You know, if you don't know what it is, I'll just give you like a brief overhaul of what it is. Um, it affected by the mid-1930s, public and private actors had taken to assessing financial risk in housing markets with recourse to race, right? And they use these color-coded residential security maps to do this. Um, and African-American communities across the United States and in Richmond were given a red distinction, uh, which meant that they were risky, uh, they were risky business endeavors, i.e., banks were not encouraged to loan federal money to these areas for development. I want you to consider that, by the way in light of all the kind of epidemiological implications that I just spoke of, and deeming certain neighborhoods hazardous and dangerous, by the way, red distinctions almost inherently devalue property. This methodology, by the way, of racial risk assessment does something even more vicious. It all but confirms the already prevalent belief that Black people brought down property values. So you have leadership on the one hand saying, we are going to divvy out federal mortgages to kind of save the, 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 the housing market from the Great Depression by pumping money into it, but only certain people are going to have access to that money. Fair, well, not fair enough. Um, but what that does is it creates this vicious cycle where neighborhoods that can't get money are now seen, right, in a particular way. And because they can't get money, it in some ways re it affirms people's idea that certain areas are just prone to blight, certain areas are prone to crime, and it just becomes this cycle. And in time, what we begin to see is that Linda's systematic financial withdrawal from African-American communities gives rise to really shockingly predictable outcomes, simultaneously, on the one hand, creating white suburbs and Black inner cities at the same time. Um, so you begin to see this more long-tortured history. Um, it, it actually begins before this, long before. So redlining is really, you know, redlining doesn't create racism, it codifies it, right? It, and it had actually been in place for quite longer than that in terms of housing uh, policies, right? Even before the Great Depression, segregationists using these constricted political bodies based on only a handful of people. Imagine the few number of people that are making decisions for the majority of Virginians in light of what I told you about the voting statistics. It's like an oligarchy, a kleptocratic oligarchy, really, if you think about it, right? Where people are paying tax money into a system that's not remunerating back into their communities, in effect. But that's not exclusive, by the way, to African-American communities. Uh, this is also to have been true for um, poor white communities uh, away from the Tidewater and the Shenandoah Valley. The further you get to West Virginia, these places are almost always neglected from the types of development that would have been commensurate with mid-20th century middle-class growth. But this starts long before that, right? Um, Segregationists often use a letter of the law to relegate these communities to the urban margins. The city of Richmond, in fact, using its constricted charter powers, adopts the first ordinance dividing the city into separate blocks of white and colored in April of 1911. 
11 months later, the General Assembly then goes on to approve legislation enabling all cities and towns in Virginia to adopt segregation districts, dividing blocks between white persons and colored persons. What this actually does, there's something more sinister going on here um, in the ways that certain zone communities are allowed to develop, the ways that certain zone communities have green space and others do not. Um, what we're beginning to see, if you know what you're looking for, are the beginnings of environmental racism, right? Uh, where African-American communities are almost certainly relegated to industrial ports to the portions of the city, portions with toxic waste, uh, portions with the kinds of things that other people didn't want to live around. Uh, people, um, in this case, that happened to be white, but if we were talking about Boston, it would be like poor Irish people. If we were talking about LA, it would be Lat the Latinx community. This goes on and on in different iterations around the United States in the early 20th century. And so African-American communities um, uh, are relegated to the most undesirable and dangerous sections of American cities, often near factories, city waste facilities, flood-prone areas, and in time, heavily concentrated spaces characterized by poverty. Here's some pictures from Richmond. Um, if you would have looked at Church Hill, by the way, in the early 19th century, it looked like a Brazilian favela. Um, and I will say this um, in all honesty, and for the sake of historical clarity and accuracy, Policymakers were actually clearing up these slums because they were dangerous. They were flown, they were prone to fires. Um, many of these houses often collapsed on people. To modernize cities, uh, you know, they're just like slums are created haphazardly. They're created piecemeal over time. Ghettos are created on purpose. And what they decide in the early 19th century is to clear these haphazardly constructed slums to make way um, for safer cities. So it's actually coming from a good place. But of course, like I said at the beginning, like people can't help themselves but to bring their biases to, to bear on these matters. And oh, by the way, there's a really good picture of Navy Hill and that area that's demolished for um, the Coliseum that's no longer used. Uh, I, I call it Richmond's pimple. Uh, it's just a terrible building. So in the mid 20th century, America's resolved to clear these urban slums to make way for growing city centers and developers uh, level entire neighborhoods. Richmond, in Richmond, that means tens of thousands of people are forcibly removed, many of them African-Americans, but not all of them. Here's the problem is that redlining ensured that African-Americans and other vulnerable communities rarely got fair market value for their homes, right? So by the 1950s, efforts to modernize American cities had racial implications. Uh, slum clearance and urban renewal subsidized by federal dollars uh, to the tune of billions, I might add, were often almost always referred to as Negro removal in Chicago, Right. This is like we're talking about millions of people or hundreds of thousands of people. Um, this is, of course, Richmond. This is carried further by freeway construction. Right. This is uh, the 9565 uh, freeway and it cuts directly through the heart of Jackson Ward. Um, and what we know now is that America's interstate system is an actual feat of engineering. There's just absolutely no doubt about it. Um, so it's, it was designed so well. We've had a hard time. Uh, weaning ourselves off the automobile like it's one of it's one of the most it is inarguably um one of the greatest feats of modern engineering what we also know is that this interstate highway system connected and divided the country at the same time um this is of course the downtown expressway if you look in the middle picture to the top right that's the that's the stadium that the university of richmond used to play its football games in and this is of course at the bottom is a picture looking toward downtown what we also know is that freeways, uh, affluent neighborhoods had the means to resist highway construction in their enclaves. And there were these were known as freeway revolts, where people with political power and money and resources 
actually went to their legislators to resist the building of freeways in their neighborhoods, which is why freeways were often built not in the path of least geographical and topographical resistance, but in the path of least political resistance. There were any number of places, by the way, where Richmond could have built its freeways. Um, there was a natural valley right to the north, by the way, of this I-6595 corridor that would probably have been a much better place to build that freeway, but they sliced it right through the heart of Jackson Ward in large part because the people in Jackson Ward have been systematically removed from the political process and didn't have the power um, or the leadership to resist these initiatives. That's why that church to this day is still like hanging on. It's like a metaphor for the story in some ways. You can drive down that freeway, you'll still see that church there hanging on. It almost looks like it's about to slide into the freeway. They had to move, pardon the pun, hell and high water um, to get that church to stay there. And that is why until recently, most of America's highways run near or cut straight through communities of color. It's not an accident. Uh, it was done very purposefully. In New York City, by the way, this comes, this is Robert Moses versus Jane Jacobs. Um, this manifests, this like materializes in all of America's cities. Um, whenever you get close to a city, you have to think very intently about why highways are where they are. And it usually has some deeply political implications. So 7,000 7, African-Americans, about 10% of Richmond's population at the time were displaced um, to make way um, for these uh, for, uh, uh, for these kinds of large swaths of asphalt. Um, and by the way, there's the, the Petersburg Turnpike. That's the bridge if you're going to the out to the airport, by the way, or Yvonne, if you're going back to Williamsburg that you take to get out of downtown. Um, it's, it's quite amazing. In the 1950s, uh, Richmond laid about 34.7 miles of asphalt, known as the Richmond-Petersburg Turnpike. That turnpike leveled um, uh, many of Richmond's neighborhoods, but Jackson Ward bore the brunt of that construction. And planners raised more than 700 homes, churches, and businesses in Jackson Ward and other African-American communities and effectively split the enclave in half. The turnpike, which opened in 1958, displaced about 10% of Richmond's Black community. But something more, um, um, you know, dangerous, I think, happened. And on the other side of Jackson Ward, the other side of that church, the city resolved to create public housing for displaced communities from that freeway and other um, uh, urban renewal efforts. And a good number of displaced African-Americans were relocated to housing projects. Places have become profound areas of disappointment, by the way. It, um, I think, you know, historians have started to talk more intently about the history of public housing in the United States. And uh, what we do know, I think, is the compression of poverty in the American public housing is probably one of the worst mistakes that urban planners made in the 20th century. Gilpin Court, built in 1943, 780 units. Hillside, 1952, 302 units. All of these units are within five miles of one another at the core of, uh, at the, core of the city, by the way. Creighton Court, 1952, uh, 504 units. Wickham, 447. Fairfield, 447. Mosby, 458. What we know, by the way, is as African-Americans are compressed into smaller core areas of the so-called, or what is becoming the inner city, suburbs are exploding, in large part because of these freeways. Between 1950 and 1970, America's suburban population doubled from roughly 37 million to 75 million. I'll put this another way. It is the greatest migration of human beings in the history of humanity. The movement of people into America's suburbs is, it, it is unquestionable, is the greatest migration in the history of humanity. The, the sheer volume of people 
that left cities for American suburbs changed the nature of American life writ large, right? So by 1967, 60% of white families in the United States lived in suburbs. More than half of the homes in these suburbs were actually bound to federally guaranteed mortgages. It means they were paid for by the federal government with American tax dollars. Unfortunately, what it also meant as many of these communities had restrictive covenants in their deeds, which disallowed African-Americans from moving into these neighborhoods, even more ominously, by the way, the Federal Housing Authority refused to insure houses um, in neighborhoods that were integrated. So it's not just people on the ground, it's the federal government and public policies that are discouraging people from living in integrated neighborhoods. That's why to this day, right, um, we have inherited this. Uh, I think people think it's just kind of the way things are. Well, I'm Making, I'm trying to make a case that, that, that well, they're like that because that's how they were intended to be. Local and federal officials granted very few mortgages in red line districts, and I mean very few, um, nominal percentage. And what we recognize now, to get back to that conversation I was having with the guy at the grocery store, is that when African-Americans took over these cities, they had inherited what was a hollow prize. These cities were already um, showing the signs of uh, anemic right, development in large part because of these policies. In 1960, 50, 46% of Richmond's Blacks had less than eight years of education. 1975, I don't know why there's two commas there, but go with me. Nearly 25% of Black families in Richmond were still beneath the poverty line, right? The threshold was about $3,700. By 1970, city schools in Richmond were probably 60% African-American, and an alarming number of those Black adolescents failed to finish high school. So what we begin to see is that African-American leadership emerges in the mid-20th century, about 1950, 1960s. Um, and I think what we've done with the civil rights movement is kind of watered it down. What, what, what people aren't necessarily in the 1950s and 60s fighting for integration in and of itself. What they're fighting for is community control. Um, they recognize that their communities are being demolished and destroyed by these policies that they can't get a seat at the table, right? Um, then there's no way that their communities are going to be able to grow in any in any positive direction. So public school integration, for instance, isn't really about going to school with white children. It's a way to force leadership to reimagine the kind of acute develop uh, lack of development that's taking place in certain schools and not others. So if no civic organization, of course, Richmond did more um, for this than the Crusade for Voters. And what they do is they essentially leverage. Um, the power in these segregated communities to influence government. And, you know, by 1966, after the ratification of the Voting Rights Act, African-Americans recognize that they can't have a seat in politics. Um, the continuity of these destructive policies is going to affect their lives well beyond um, the freedom struggle. And, you know, I, I, I won't suffer you the details here. I just want you to know that this is resisted, by the way. Um, African-Americans begin to make inroads into Southern politics, um, there's actually a complexion revolution in Southern politics after 1965. Um, and what that means is it was politics was always the end game for African-American leadership in the 1950s and the 1960s because they recognized that in a, rep a constitutional republic, right, uh, you, politics is a conduit to resources. Um, it's always been a conduit to resources. For, for immigrant communities. You see this, by the way, with the ways that Irish communities took over the police departments of New York and, uh, and Boston, right? Uh, uh, that is a way for them to wedge themselves directly into power positions that begin to funnel resources to the community so they can remain viable. The problem is in the South and in Richmond, Southern leadership, as they were during Reconstruction, were reluctant in some ways 
to give up the vestiges of power. And one of the ways that they do this um, is to dilute African-Americans' votes. So in Richmond, this is done by vote dilution. What they did, and these maps demonstrate, the bottom one shows old Richmond. Um, the top one shows policymakers expanding Richmond's borders to take on 44,000 whites to preclude African-Americans from taking over the city. And what we realize is that kind of Southern anxiety about Black governance leads to yet another kind of Machiavellian frenzy of resistance. As African-Americans begin to frequent Southern polls in record numbers, um, the process of diminishing their political power after votes have been cast gains new momentum. And the continuity of residential segregation and white resistance to Black ballots kind of leads to shockingly predictable political outcomes, by the way, which still exist to this day. If you understand the history of American residential patterns, do you understand politics? By the way, it is shifting, of course, because of things like the Great Inversion, which is otherwise known as gentrification. And uh, but these neighborhoods are really only kind of temporarily diverse. So what does it mean? It means that in cities, uh, you're going to get a liberal. Uh, it means in outer ring suburbs, you might get a, a moderate liberal or a moderate conservative. The further you push out from the core of the city, the more conservative people generally tend to get in who they elect. And by the time you get to rural areas, you're just in the lunatic fringe. And I mean, I'm only I'm only half kidding. What I'm saying is, um, and by the way, political strategists know this very well. They're doing metadata now down to the zip code, down to the house. They're all this data is available at their fingerprints. Is you can in effect, draw district boundaries around these kind of long-standing housing patterns that make political outcomes almost inevitable. And it is a direct reflection of the ways that cities have been organized over the course of the 20th century. And ignorance of this history is no excuse because the people who are responsible for making right these political, these strategic moves about where people vote and how they vote um, actually understand this history very well. Um, and so the Supreme Court, in fact, pauses um, elections in Richmond between 1970 and 1977 and says there's no way that you can do this anymore. And what they do is they mandate a particular, a particular voting system that gives African-Americans back the clout that they had before um, Richmond annexes Chesterfield County. By the way, the reason I'm bringing this up is because the resistance that's currently taking place in the Supreme Court to the Voting Rights Act of 1965 actually has everything to do with the policies that emerge from Richard Nixon Supreme Court in the 1970s. And that is also the same um, city council that is elected in 1977. That system still uh, runs city politics in Richmond to this day. So here's what I'm really getting at, right? And you see this across America. So while all these politicians are on here, right? You've got Wilson Good in Philadelphia, Tom Bradley. You've got Coleman Young in Detroit, Carl Stokes, Henry Marsh, Maynard Young. Well, Maynard Young, Henry Marsh, Carl Stokes, Coleman Young. Wilson Good and Tom Bradley. Uh, black politicians in Richmond and beyond spent the better portion of the late 20th centuries trying to clean up the mess made by segregationists, right? And they failed miserably. You still see it in political dialogue in the state. like, go to Detroit, right? And when people are, if, if they're actually being honest with you, they will say, wow, black people ruined the city. It's like, as if GM had nothing to do with that. And what we recognize is ultimately that many cities with sizable minority populations not only inherited what we call black regimes, those regimes were actually blamed for the, the kind of declination that took place in these cities over the course of the 20th century without giving much consideration to all the kind of political, economic, and social forces that were taking place in these cities well before these people took leadership positions in local government. In time, what we see oh, in the late 20th century is that economic pragmatism 
begins to eclipse the political optimism of the civil rights movement. And this is what we, let me say what this means in, in, in political terms. As tax revenues dried up, right, because the suburbanization of people was followed shortly by the suburbanization of jobs. As the Reagan administration begins to pull money out of cities, it's called new federalism, by the way, it takes place in the, in the early 1980s. As deindustrialization quickens and as mechanization and automation neutralize workers in industrial cities, black politicians begin to try to build their way to better cities. And they do this, by the way, um, by attempting to lure businesses or develop silver bullet strategies that might reinvigorate downtowns and African-Americans. We just get that shopping mall. If we could have a stadium, if we had a skyscraper, if we could do this, we could generate tax revenue in the city to mitigate against these housing patterns that I'm talking about. If you are paying attention to what I'm saying, I am telling you that these men actually laid the groundwork for gentrification. They are the ones in effect that said, we have to lure people back to these cities to save them from themselves, to save them from the policies of the 20th century. They recognize because cities by their very nature are limited in their ability to tax. So they rely on private industries more than state and federal government might, which can kind of tax people, I wouldn't say indiscriminately, but a much larger clip than cities. So cities have to rely on business to thrive. And what these guys do as people continue to lead and the inner city begins to cave in, they say, we've got to come up with inventive strategies to build, rebuild tax bases. And they fail at first, but what they end up doing is creating an urban political model that lays the groundwork for the redevelopment of cities like Richmond. That is precisely why you see a renaissance in Richmond with, with, with restaurants, or you see the reinvigoration of communities that had once been forgotten about. They do this through historical tax abatements and tax credits and things of that nature to lure people back into these cities. It is a long-term strategy that was actually developed to mitigate against all the things that I just spoke about. Yet these men were still blamed for the decline of cities. And I'm in some ways saying to you, they have not gotten the credit they deserve, right? Or the reinvigoration of these cities. And what we're beginning to see also is that in some ways, some of this racism outlived the segregated system. Between the 1970s and 1990s, private investors and lending agencies began to flood Black communities with subprime and reverse. Well, this is, in fact, the very practices that led to the housing bubble collapse of the early 2000s have been going on in African-American neighborhoods in the 1970s and the 1980s. Can't get a loan from the federal government? We'll give you a housing loan at 25% interest, or we'll give you a reverse mortgage, right? And uh, Kianga uh, Yamana Taylor has described this process as predatory inclusion. And that's what we begin to, that's what we saw in African-American communities um, in the 1980s and the 1990s and a little bit into the early 20th century, demonstrating how the very mortgage practices that led to the Great Recession have been taking place in black communities as far back as the 1970s. Here's the dirty little secret too. Nonprofit organizations and colleges and universities have in many cities supervised the resulting black poverty, investing in and in sometimes perpetuating what we call the eds and med strategy of urban renewal. Oh, if I could just get a grant to study this, po this poverty, right? VCU was almost single-handedly responsible, right? For keeping downtown Richmond relatively salient, right? During this kind of anemic period in Richmond's development. In some ways, what I'm trying to say, and I, I, this is kind of the kind of side, um, colleges and universities, have done some very marvelous things in trying to mitigate against the continuity of poverty. They've also in some ways perpetuated it. Um, 
And it's some, it's a legacy that we're going to have to come to terms with. Virginia Commonwealth University's medical system is still seen, right, in some ways uh, in the Black community in the city of Richmond and Johns Hopkins in Baltimore and any other city that services a poor community across the United States as a force for not good, in fact, in many places. And I think that's something that we have to think about as we move forward is like, to what extent are these institutions in these communities to actually do good? Um, because history- Dr. Hayden? Yeah. I, I hate to interrupt because I'm uh, learning all kinds of stuff as a native Richmonder, but we're actually at 747 and we'd love to- I'm almost done. Okay. Can I finish? Yeah, well, I mean, I don't have to a question like, or something in. Like, yeah, I'm just gonna do like urban heat indexes, and then I'm done, right? Okay. So, but what we know now, if you look at the bottom map that's superimposed, that's redlining. You look at the middle map; those are urban heat indexes. You look at the top map; those are areas where people don't have proper tree cover. So we know now that certain areas, by the way, because of these historical policies, are five to 13 degrees hotter than other areas. My point is, these policies are still with us. Here's what I'm really trying to tell you guys tonight. These policies were intentional. The intentionality of racial residential patterns have consequences. They require recognition to be reconciled because things done on purpose can only be undone purposely. I think there's a belief in this country that the further we got away from this tortured racial history, that this stuff would just disappear into the atmosphere. I think in order to come to terms with these policies, where they require an equal, if not greater, intentionality. Um, and leadership is going to have to contemplate that if we're going to move forward in any viable manner in the future. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, like I said, I'm a native Richmonder and, and I learned a lot. Some of it also lined up with my experience because I'm a member of one of those churches in Jackson Ward. And so, you know, if they hadn't saved six Mount Zion, they would have taken out my church too when they sure. yeah. interstate. Um, I, I actually, the, the kickoff, um, questions. I, I had one that's kind of re related um, and actually gets back to university's role mm -hmm. all of this. Um, you've seen probably the trends in DEI of having land acknowledgement and Black um, labor statements. Yeah. Usually also going back to colonialism and, and slavery. Sure. Um, what is your opinion about them in general? And how should universities like you are and VCU, um, if they adopt them, also take into account the modern um, things that we've seen in relationship to Black um, power urbanization and their role in it? I, I guess you have to deal with them on a case-by-case -case basis, and you measure them by the distinction between what a university says it is and how it behaves, right? Um, the, but the dedication to these things alone isn't going to get anything accomplished, by the way. It's better to have it on the books than otherwise, but I think you do have to gauge um, the distinctions between what a university says it is and how it behaves. Um, and I think we've seen this at the University of Richmond lately, like with any number of incidents that have transpired on campus, um, calling the question of uh, the university's dedication and many of these policies. Um, however, I'm also a historian, so I have to take things in, you know, historical context. You are as not you are of 15 years ago. It's not you are of 20 years ago or 50 years ago. Um, sometimes this change is incremental. Uh, of course, students always want it to happen faster than it actually does. But I do think it forces us to question. Um, having these, these types of um, declarations force us to consider how well we're actually upholding them. So in that way, I don't think they can be like considered negative per se, 
um, because it creates some type of standard for people to uphold. The, the extent to which that standard is held, by the way, um, is a reflection on the standards themselves. But I think that is a step in the right direction. So, you know, it's like having a universal declaration of human rights is probably better than not having one um, because it gives people something to, to, to return to in instances of deep uh, dehumanization and, um, and, and infringes on people's, you know, Right, so I think that's where we're at. But it, I do believe that in, in some ways, this is a kind of legendary pivot toward a movement uh, away from the kind of tortured history that many of these institutions share. Some universities are way ahead of others though. Thanks, Dr. Hader. Um, one of the questions that was submitted uh, ahead of time um, uh, was, what, what is the greatest barrier to rectifying past policy infrastructures and failures, in your opinion? Ignorance, right? Of historical, right, context, I think. Um, how can you resolve what hasn't been addressed? That is like, I think that's probably the, the heart of this current debate over you know, what's called CRT. Um, I just don't, uh, people, this kind of history brings up emotions and you know, I think people struggle to come to terms with it. It's not an indictment, by the way, of American history. It's as much as it is uh, saying, hey, this is part of the narrative. If we can deal with this, I think we'll be better off. But I think you can't, there's no way you come to terms, um, I think, with the present implications of historical um, in, um, context without actually coming to terms with the historical context itself. So. That's where I'm at on that. I think that's probably, that's the simple answer is knowing is better than not knowing, right? And a follow-up to that is what policy decisions in your view are being made today might eventually have a similar impact as the, you know, you're talking about the policy, mid-century policies that destroyed the community. Yeah. All yeah. that, like, what, what are you seeing here that like right now we're making decisions that may be intended consequences or maybe even unintended consequences down the road? Well, I think uh, I'll, I'll speak about something positive. I think what we saw, um, in, so I'm currently, I live in a house with a historical tax credit, right? It was built in 1923 on the north side um, in what would be considered a gentrifying neighborhood. By the way, gentrification is not really specific per se. It's, you know, I'm a gentrifier. I, I moved into a historically depressed neighborhood. I raised the education income level. That is textbook gentrification, right? Um, I think what we found is that incentivizing people to move into these enclaves with those tax abatements raises other people's property values on fixed income who have been in these communities for years. And cities recognize that if we can change the tax code to encourage in-migration, we can change or um, freeze the tax code to preclude people from being pushed out who are on fixed incomes. That, that's the little things, right? So I think on the one hand, you saw this policy to encourage growth, um, um, in communities that had that didn't have it, and there wasn't much consideration given to who might be pushed out by these policies. We're at that point now where people are beginning to say we have to be very considerate uh, about the the transitionally integrated neighborhoods that we're encouraging through certain policies and not and bringing others about. So um, I do believe that people are giving serious consideration to some of the larger demographic trends that are happening in American cities and trying to mitigate against some of the more negative effects that these are having, but it, it just takes time. I think um, this will probably be our final question because it's getting close to eight. Um, but for especially those of us who were not 
lucky, blessed enough to have you as a professor. Besides your book, what things should we read or watch to learn more about the issue um, and our leadership role in it? Uh, I do think Richard Rothstein's book, uh, Color of Law, is a good book. The book I put up about, um, there's another book. Uh, the book I put up by Kenyaga uh, is a really good book. There's another book that's titled Escapes Me. Um, what it's talking, it's called The Poverty Industry. Um, it's amazing because it talks about the, na the nature in which the nonprofit industry has essentially made its bones, right? Off, uh, the, the, really the thesis of the book is that poverty actually is a moneymaker. Um, that we, as we assume that in, in, in impoverished communities, there's just nothingness, that there's a vacuum. And um, what this book argues, uh, the poverty industry, is that no, there's actually a profit industry um, based around communities that are struggling on the economic margins. Um, many of them nonprofit, but not all of them. Some of them universities. Um, and I think what it does is kind of opens up, it gets you to reimagine or at, at least reconsider um, what poverty is and what it's not. Because there's not nothingness there. And I think that is the assumption about oh, no, there's nothing in a poor community. Uh, there are plenty of people know that there's um there that there's more than nothing there. Um, and in that um lack of nothingness, there's there's money to be made. And I get back to the previous question about, you know, um, how do we mitigate against some of these trends? Uh, it's by reimagining some of these forgotten enclaves and some of these forgotten folks and some of these forgotten communities, because there are industries that haven't forgotten them. And they haven't necessarily been a force for good. Um, that's a good one. I also think, you know, just, just read the news, man. Uh, um, notice I said not why I don't watch the news in my house. Um, uh, I think trying to read as much as you can, staying abreast of, you know, many of these trends. I do think, I, I think very, you know, people always ask me, like, oh, what do we do with this history? Or, you know, how how can reading, no, actually, like, I'll throw it back at you. It's like, do you talk to your neighbors, right? Um, how political are we? Like, I think people think that when they're political because they watch, like, news stations and, and, right, you know, it's like, it's a defining characteristic of people's identity in the 21st century that, like, rattle off who you voted for. But they don't act like political actors in their own enclaves, right? Um, I think that's like a really important thing. It's like, do you talk to your neighbors? Are you familiar with your school board member? Uh, are you part of a neighborhood association? Do you act that way? I, it, so, you know, so I'm, I'm actually saying some anti-Jepsonian, like forget about leadership at that altitudinal level. We think of this as like at the elected level. It's like, what about like the groundwork? Like it's almost, it's this very essential portion of politics that we've forgotten about where I think leadership is actually even more important um, in everyday people. And I think when people begin to do that, uh, you know, only then can you supplement that with like reading material, but just get out and, and interact in the community, I think is probably one of the most important steps that people can take to shape the spaces that they inhabit on a regular basis. So that, that's lots of great food for thought. And if you're looking for a way to talk to your neighbors and kind of bring in some of these issues, you want to start a book club and not even necessarily jump into the color of law, though I've read that and it's great. Um, there's a, a fictional thriller on gentrification called When No One Is Watching. Um, so, you know, have a book club with your neighbors, read that and then talk about what's happening in your neighborhood. 
Um, <laughs> be a good starting place. Um, okay, thank you. I want to thank everyone so much for joining us. Um, yeah, my pleasure. Yeah, and 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 I, I kind of want to see if I can take your class as an alumna. Uh, we should work on <laughs> doctors. Just love back and class. watch Monday Night Football first. So, <laughs> uh, so that's yeah. the whole thing. Uh, yeah, I'm, like, no, I'm looking at the clock too because Dave wants to weighing <laughs> in, but she's going to say so whether it's faculty, older faculty, or more recent faculty, everybody wants to take the classes that everybody taught. And that's the thing that's great about Jepson Talks. So, Julian, I really appreciate you taking yeah, time tonight and spend time yeah. with us. Um, and we're looking forward to seeing everybody next semester when we do some more of these. All right. Yep. Yep. I know some That's of these faces insane. and names, can... so I, I see you guys. Um, it's good to see you. I don't see enough of you, but you know how it is. Thank you, Dr. Yep. Hayter. Take care. All right. All right, everybody. Thank you so much.